Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free while lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. My name is Dave Denniston, your host, and welcome back to the latest episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. Now, welcome back to our monthly fireside chat with a physician to get to know their journey, their joys, and their struggles with finances and outside of finances. And my friends, in this show, I really try and dig deep to find some interesting people. And as a matter of fact, our previous guest, Physician on Fire, has a list of bloggers that is about a mile long. And I have to be honest, it's a great way to find some guests. So thank you, Physician on Fire, if you're listening. Well, anyhow, our next guest, he is one of those folks. He is a physician, a radiologist, as a matter of fact, who is married to a pediatrician. And he's relatively new to the blogging world, having started his blog in April, and I think he has some really great quality information in there that he is going to share with us. And he says that he loves travel, food, books, running, and the 90s. Ah, yes, the decade of NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears. So I don't know why he loves the 90s so much. We're going to have to find out about that. Anyhow, I can't wait to hear about his journey and his advice for us. Please help me welcome Neil from my Curiosity Lab. Welcome, Neil. Thank you, David. Um, thanks for that great introduction, and uh, appreciate you having me on the podcast. Glad to have you here, my friend. It's going to be fun, and I think you have some really great thoughts to share with everyone. Now, first question. It's a toughie. Why the 90s? <laughs> the 90s. Well, I think, um, you know, a lot of that comes from just basically when I was born, because I was born in a I was born in 1979, so, you know, that first decade of your life, um, which goes, it takes me to 1989, um, you know, you're young and you're somewhat aware of what's going on in the world, but uh, really pop culture and um, books and movies and music really makes the imprint on your psyche, I think, when you're in your, your preteen and your teenage years, which is right around when the 90s hit for me. And so I don't know if I'm a... I don't know if I can subscribe to your um, the Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears, like you were saying, as, as far as being a uh, you know that prominent in my life at that time. But um, you know, right around, I, I specifically remember actually when I was uh, must have been around 13 or so years old when Nirvana first came on the scene and oh, watching sure. Smells Like Teen Spirit music video on MTV when MTV still played uh, music um, back then, <laughs> and. Um, you know, I just, it just was kind of my formative years, hanging out with my friends, watching, watching the movies of the 90s. And, um, you know, I'm, I still like the 80s, don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, Karate Kid, Gremlins, Back to the Future, all those great Poofy movies. Hair. Like you said. Short, Poofy short. hair. Short shorts. High interest rates. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's weird. We had actually a, a strange style, I remember, in the 80s, where we would, we would have short shorts, but we also had those socks that uh, went up to about the knees, <laughs> the, uh, the tube socks with the stripes at the top, so... Um, and we didn't, and we would, we would, for some reason, when we had long pants, uh, we would push our sweatpants up to the knees so we could expose those, those long socks. Um, so yeah, those pictures from back then that I sometimes see at my parents' house are, are fun to look at, but not, Wait. uh, <laughs> go ahead. Sorry. Well, you know, it, it's, it's so funny the, how things come back around. I, I was born in 81 
And I, I grew up on uh, DuckTales, which a previous podcast episode, we talked about that. Were you a, a Scrooge McDuck kind of guy, cartoons growing I, up, or what, what were you watching? I was. My brothers and I, I have two younger brothers. Um, we probably watched too much TV, honestly, growing up. And I remember <laughs> we, when we would come home, um, I have a vague idea of what the cartoon schedule and the TV schedule what, what was like back then because, you know, there was no DVR, no way to record and watch things later. So you just kind of came home and whatever was on, you would watch. And we would watch, um, we would do the Saturday morning cartoons. They were still a thing, I think, even into the 90s. Um, and uh, DuckTales was one of them um, specifically that I remember watching. Uh, the, the show that really stood out to me that I loved a lot as a kid and my brothers loved was Fraggle Rock. Um, it might have been, <laughs> yeah. been on HBO, actually. I'm, I don't remember. But um, we loved that. I would watch, you know, the episodes multiple, multiple times and never get tired of it. And I also remember specifically Different Strokes was always on when we came home from school. And so that became... We watched the episode. We must have watched each episode over the course of a year, probably, you know, a dozen times. They just replayed them over and over. They must have known that kids came home and were turning on the TVs at around 3 o'clock or 3.30, and so they had, a, they had some programming for us um, to keep us occupied while parents were doing whatever. Parents were not home yet, I guess, a lot of the time. And what did your folks do? Were they physicians at all, or what, what was their background? No, no. There's no, no physicians in my family, actually, um, interestingly, but... My mother was a, uh, or is a speech pathologist, trained as a speech pathologist. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, she did that up until my middle brother was born. And then she was a stay-at-home mom for a few years. And I had a, you know, a third brother born. And she stayed home with us for the better part of a decade. Um, and then she subsequently went back. And now she's kind of in administration uh, for preschool age early intervention programs. Mm-hmm. And then my father was... Um, He's had a few different jobs. He's, he's now currently worked for a while at a, uh, a distribution center, the kind of place that if you click on Amazon, one-click ordering, you know, it kind of goes to he, – he's a third party. He's not an Amazon warehouse, but um, he handles orders for Amazon and Apple and all these different online companies that do shipping. And uh, he's actually in inventory control, which deals with when things get damaged and someone drops, in, you know, a, a MacBook or – an iPhone or whatever, he looks at it and sees if, if it's able to be sent back to the manufacturer for a refund or if it's kind of damaged beyond repair. So that's what they that's do. Interesting. Um, pre- previous podcast guest, Nee Darko, talked about how when he watched the Cosby show, that that influenced him to be a doctor. That sounds like that, that you were a TV nerd like me. Was, was there any sort of influence that that was like that like for me um that influenced you that uh said er or i don't know some some sort of show that's like mm-hmm. man i'd love to be a doctor you know since you weren't around it at all what when did that happen you know it really happened much later than my childhood um i'd like to say that i have some fantastic story about how i was always knew i wanted to be a doctor and my pediatrician inspired me on all of that but it really i really kind of fell into it in a lot of ways um, I was always interested in science, kind of science and math geek in high school. And going off to college, um, I, I continued along those, those lines. And the big decision for me in early part of college, I, I actually started in the pre-med track because the college I went to was, um, had a lot of kids that went to pre-med track and the pre-law track, pre-professional uh, in general. So I started in the pre-med track since I 
uh, was interested in science in general. And uh, the big decision was whether to pursue medicine or go on into a more research uh, track, uh, doing mm-hmm. something like a PhD and uh, bench research or, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, in the end, I, I started doing some rotations at a local hospital when I was in college and started talking to uh, doctors that were working there. And, you know, you, you don't really, you have this vague picture in your mind of what it's, what it's like to be a doctor and what a doctor does. But once you, once you get into the, the actual details, you know, you learn that your doctor doesn't always have to be someone that you go into the office and they check your heart and lungs and, you know, you're, the, the, everyone has a picture. Most people that are not doctors uh, have the picture of a primary care doctor as your kind of quintessential doctor. Uh, but I, I discovered as I would talk to these different types of doctors at the local hospital that there are a lot of different paths you can take and medicine can be really a very varied career uh, depending on what you want to do. Um, and I kind of somewhat had in the back of my mind after talking to radiologists that uh, that sounded interesting to me and, and something that I would like. So it really, the seed wasn't planted for medicine for me fully until college. Um, hmm. And then I kind of continued down that path and pursued it in that direction. That's interesting. And up to this point, Neil, with what, what was your experience with money? Were you someone that, that money was something talked about in the household or were you working? You know, what, what was that like as you were growing up? Well, money for uh, my parents, you know, I love them to death, but I have to be honest that they were not, they were not very good with uh, their finances growing up. Um, you know, they, we, were, we were by no means uh, wealthy. We, I would say we were probably in the lower middle class. We never struggled with uh, any severe poverty as far as having difficulty with food or anything like that or shelter. Um, but, you know, there was some months where the money ran out and uh, we had to forego any luxuries. And um, that's what it was like for a big part of my childhood. Eventually my parents kind of worked at their jobs and um, the leanest years were the years when my mom was at a state, a stay at home mom with us and my dad was working. And when she kind of went back to work, uh, you know, the, the money um, made it a little less difficult um, as far as living paycheck to paycheck. But, how do you think um, that? Uh, how do you think that 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 molded your perception, if at all? You know, go, going through those lean times. Well, um, it's interesting because I I don't necessarily think of them. I didn't think of them in that way when I was a child, because uh, my parents tried, I think, very hard to uh, give us the the best that they could. Um, you know, if we needed $10 or $15 to go out with our friends to a movie or something, they would always, I can't remember really moments where they would say no, you know, they wanted us to kind of uh, do what we could and enjoy our lives. And I think they would, on the back end, they would sacrifice and maybe even make some decisions where they were putting too much money on credit cards and racking up too much debt and even, you know, second mortgaging their their home in the long run um, by being a little too loose with, with spending in that way. Um, So, uh, I mean, but looking back on it, I know that it it kind of was a long process where at the time it seemed like nothing was amiss, but looking back on it, I realized that they were making a lot of, that they had made a lot of poor financial decisions and talking to them about their finances now, you know, with me as an adult thinking of, about my own finances, I realized that I didn't want to make some of those same 
mistakes that they had made. Um, it's hard to call. I hesitate to call them mistakes a little bit because, um, I mean, I guess they were financial mistakes in the long run, but they were really doing what they felt was uh, best and right for us, trying to give us the best, the best they could. But they kind of put themselves in a, in a tough financial spot. Um, but they eventually dug themselves out, dug themselves out of as they as they near retirement. They're actually retiring this year, and they should be in pretty pretty fine financial shape, actually. Um, but I think you know, looking back on their financial decisions in our family, uh, really was the biggest influence for me about wanting to get my financial house in order as I got older and started a family of my own. So going through undergrad, did, were you having to take on, and medical school, were you having to take much on the way of debt, or were you able to get scholarships, or what, what was that experience like? I did. Uh, in undergrad, my debt was fairly minimal. I think I had a few thousand dollars in, uh, in subsidized loans after college. Um, mm-hmm. I, got, I got a combination of scholarships and my parents. My parents were making, actually, my parents were making little um, enough money that I think that helped financially get, get the financial need, the need-based financial aid um, that a lot of colleges offer. Uh, if your parents are, don't have a lot of money saved for college and you don't have a high uh, salary, so coming out of college, uh, my debt was fairly minimal, but then medical school, um, you know, it was, this, I graduated medical school in uh, 2005, and so it's not quite the level of loans that I'm hearing some doctors are coming without these days, uh, yeah. but it was definitely in the, you know, for each of my wife and me, it was in the six figures, you know, and um, we still have that to a certain degree, even though we're, we're paying it down, and I don't anticipate it being an issue. They are actually, the loans are, we got lucky um, the year, I think the year or two after we graduated, they changed the, uh, the way the interest rates could kind of, um, was, was variable where as of the year we had it, it was a, a fairly low fixed rate that we were able to um, uh, garner at that time. So ours, ours are actually at less than 2% interest um, which is pretty pretty amazing. So we just kind of kept them and been paying them off slowly, um, making a little more than the minimum payments, just because we feel like the money would be better better off invested than paying off a very very low interest loan that we have. Well, I think that's that's one of the more interesting things about how time has changed. I mean, I remember after my undergrad um, that it was just so easy to find lenders that were under the federal program. And then when they changed it in 2007, 2008, you know, everyone started getting 6.8% interest rate compounding rather than what we were able to get at the time, which was 2 3%. Um, you know, shop it out among a bunch of different lenders that were backed by the Fed. So I think it's, it's mm-hmm. interesting how that's changed. Um, are you seeing a lot of colleagues now with $200,000, $300,000 in debt? Uh, what are you seeing as you're talking to? Yeah, I, I know most, intimately my brother because he also went into medicine he's physical medicine and rehab uh, and he graduated in 2009 and um, his loans are in the I don't know the exact numbers but I know they're they're probably double what mine were I think they're they were close to if not more than 300,000 and I know from reading websites like the white coat investor uh, people talking about their loans that some people are coming out with 400 or even half a million dollars in, in debt, which is kind of crazy, especially if 
you're going into or considering going into one of the one of the lower paying specialties um, out there, it makes it a really difficult decision or a, a tough uh, pill to swallow with going, you know, getting paid in the low, very low six figures if your debt is in the uh, $500,000 range. It's, uh, it's daunting to say the least. Well, still, I mean, I'm sure for, for you and, and your wife, she was a, is a pediatrician and you're a radiologist, so you had to go through fellowship, I'm guessing. Is she transitioned to practice or is she a couple years younger or how, how did that dynamic work um, between the two so we, of you and when you got together? Yeah, we are, we're the same age and the same year in school. So she graduated 2005, the same year as I did. And she was um, in her, she did a primary care pediatrics, so three years after that. And then my radiology was um, five years and then one year of fellowship. So I had six total, she had three total. So she, basically she worked in a, a primary care practice for three years. And then uh, before I actually came out and uh, started working my job. Um, so it was kind of a, a stepwise uh, increase in income. Uh, the biggest step being at the end of my my fellowship when I took my, my job that I have now, which was six years ago, 2011. So so it goes from, oh, crap, we have no money, <laughs> to, hey, we're making some money. So, oh, my gosh, we're making tons of money. So in, in that process, Neil, were you, did you make any mistakes along that way, or have you just always been someone that, that is just spot on with their finances? It sounds like you didn't have too, too great of, of an education from your folks. Um, how did that come about for you? Well, there was kind of a, a turning point, I would say, when I was nearing the end of my fellowship, and um, I was thinking about getting disability insurance and getting uh, a life insurance policy. We didn't have children yet, but um, it, was, it just seemed a logical time to, uh, to do that with the transition that was happening. And there were a couple advisors that were pretty reputable from what, I, from what I knew at the time that most residents coming out of our training program would go to and would, um, would get kind of the appropriate insurances. Um, life and disability especially. And so when we met with them, um, and we actually ended up getting policies with them for, for uh, disability, um, a true own occupation disability insurance, which, which was appropriate, I think. But uh, at the same time, they were trying to push or really push, which I think is probably a story that you might hear from a lot of doctors, push a whole life insurance policy. Um, mm -hmm which was very, very expensive. Uh, it was at least $1,000 a month from what I remember for the, uh, for the premiums, um, which is, you know, 10 times the amount of what a, what a term life uh, policy was, which is what we ended up going with. But I really felt uncomfortable when they were kind of pushing this uh, and giving a big PowerPoint, fancy PowerPoint presentation about a whole life and how great it was and how you're saving money uh, for retirement as well as, uh, you know, insuring against, death and how much it would be worth, you know, in, in the future and it never expires and all these, you know, these reasons that uh, it was the, the right policy to go with. Um, but, uh, I, and that kind of really was the impetus for me to say, you know, I don't know, these guys could be telling me something that's, you know, completely not a lie necessarily, but you know they could be they could be pushing something that is a benefit a benefit to them and not really a benefit to me. And in fact, I mean most of the time and in, in most 
situations like that, that's the case that, you know, someone's trying to sell you something. There's a reason they're trying to sell it to you and it's not, it's not for your own good. Um, and so, uh, that kind of lit a fire under my butt and got me, uh, started thinking about reading about personal finance. And, uh, I remember the first book I put, I picked up, just went to the bookstore, Barnes and Noble. I don't know if they're even around anymore, but I think they are here and there. <laughs> I got a, uh, uh, personal finance for dummies by uh, by Eric Tyson, and uh, just kind of went through it. took a took a couple weeks, and I think he had book recommendations in there. I don't remember if I specifically used those or if I ended up discovering a few uh, websites like the Bogleheads website. Um, eventually, in the White Coat Investor, uh, those were kind of some of the early websites that I that I would read, and they had book recommendations there as well. Um, and you know, I think it took about maybe a few months of reading in my free time uh, before I felt comfortable and felt like I had a foundation for you know, what I needed to do and felt comfortable with actually doing it, doing it myself and, under, and understanding and trusting myself uh, that, I could, that I could choose what I was going to do um, and what I needed to do to uh, take care of my personal finances. So, Neil, so you, you read all of these books. Uh, you mentioned you went on the White Coat Investor. So you went through this whole educational time in your life where you're like, oh, crap, I know nothing about this, the, the, the dummy guide for finance to reading more and more advanced stuff uh, to where you say, like, okay, I got this. How, how long was that process for you? Uh, was it months, two months, years? How long did that take you to, to finally feel comfortable? I think it was a solid uh, few months. It's not something when people, when I talk to people and some, sometimes people, especially uh, my brothers or, you know, close family members or close friends that we get to talking about personal finance and they ask me how I deal with my investments and who I use, if I have an advisor, all of this. Um, and uh, a lot of times, um, you know, I tell them that it, it's not rocket science, but it's not something that you can do necessarily in a day or at least do all of it in a day. Um, so uh, I would say it took, it took a few months um, to really read and, and you probably could learn even the more bare bones basics and, and less time than that. Uh, but um, for what I wanted to kind of understand uh, about the basics of all the, of all the finances and uh, that I needed to know or that I felt I needed to know, I think it took a few months. And I think that's kind of a misconception um, or potential misconception with a lot of a lot of doctors out there because and a lot of prof- other professionals maybe as well because it takes so much time uh, invested to learn their crafts to such a degree that when they they think about learning about personal finance or you know the, this is this what they see as large daunting field of personal finance um, they think that you know, I just have to leave that up to the other experts, the people that are the experts in personal finances. And they think that, you know, there's kind of an, an equivalent um, of, uh, of that kind of training. And I think there, there are, you know, obviously experts in all of these fields, but I think for the, for the basics that most doctors need to do their own personal finances or at least understand enough that if they're working with someone else on their own personal finances that they – uh, they know what's going on and they're familiar uh, enough to uh, feel comfortable with what kind of choices their advisor is making. Um, 
I think that doesn't take as much time as most doctors think um, and as much energy as most, as most doctors think. So that's a great point, and I think that you do have to put time in, though, obviously, to understand the lingo, and you obviously can get more and more deep into some specifics, but to understand the basics, I absolutely agree. Um, a little bit of time will take you, take you a long ways. How did, let's just tie this back to, you were talking about how a, a person was trying to sell you a whole life insurance policy. Was that something where you actually uh, paid for the policy uh, or did you end up saying, screw it, this is crazy. Uh, I don't want to put out a grand a month uh, for each of us for this kind of thing. What, what happened with that process? So that was, that was a big turning point I see in retrospect because that before he kind of gave us the spiel, uh, the big PowerPoint, like I said, and we didn't have to make a decision on the spot, although he was actually kind of pushing us to, to sign or at least get the process started at that time. And we said, you know, let's think about it because the sticker shock of the, of the monthly premiums were, was so high to us that we didn't feel comfortable making a decision in the spur of the moment. And, uh, you know, we didn't totally dismiss it because um, at least before I started reading more about it, we had, had people or residents that had graduated a few years ahead of me that I was pretty close to, and I know that they had actually purchased the whole life policies. Um, but... I think because we uh, took the time and kind of hesitated and, um, you know, I, I went home and said, you know, I need to at least read a little bit about this whole life and what it means. Because, I, I mean, they present it, but I didn't really understand what it was. And, and once you get out there and on a lot of the, the financial uh, uh, forums and bulletin boards that are out there, um, there's a lot of information, a lot of good information um, about these different types of financial products and, and uh, insurances. And, and so that really was, um, like I said, uh, I think a big, a big turning point and a, a possible, it could have been a possible big mistake that would have cost us a good amount of money down the road. But I feel like we got pretty lucky um, in that we, we just decided to put the brakes on for a few minutes and, and return to it at a later point. And they still, they still pushed it pretty hard actually when we went back, which, even at that time, after I read about it, gave me some doubts, <laughs> even though I felt like I knew that, that I, I wanted to buy a term life policy. You know, people can be pretty good salesmen uh, of, of, uh, of whole life and of other, other products that, um, you know, you might not be in the best, best interest of the, of the client all the time, uh, but we were able to resist. <laughs> the resistance versus yeah. the machine. Um, so I think you had a big lesson in there that, that probably saved you maybe tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe down the road. And I think to be fair, there's probably a certain point in time when that, that might be appropriate for some people. Um, but that's a pretty limited circumstance and certainly not for a resident, in my opinion. Um, how do you think of priorities? Um, so you had, you made this decision not to um, go for that. You mentioned that you had very low interest rates. Um, between you and your uh, wife, I, I, I see some of the biggest decisions residents struggle with today are 
well, gosh, I want my kids to go to college. I want to be debt-free. I want to save so I can retire one day. And they're just struggling uh, to have all these priorities as well as buying their first house. How did you, Neil, think about those, those priorities without getting too much into the, the specifics um, of, of what those things might be? What, what, how were you prioritizing those things as you were coming out of, as you and your wife were both coming out of residency? I think the, the first and foremost um, that I learned from reading a lot of these, uh, these finance bulletin boards and kind of reading books uh, about personal finance was to pay yourself first, meaning uh, save for retirement. Because if you start to think about all these other things, like you said, saving for college, um, whatever else, you know, houses and, and cars and, all, and boats and all of that, whatever else might tempt you when you're coming out and first start drawing a larger paycheck. Um, if you, you kind of can't go back in time and save for retirement. And the earlier you save and the more money you save uh, as quickly as you can, you know, that's really going to gonna grow over time and uh, be what you're able to retire on, possibly even retire early uh, if things go well and, and uh, you know, you, you, uh, you save enough in, over the long run. Um, so that was, that was really what I, what I learned is a big take-home point from, from kind of my introduction to financial education when I first started reading. Um, and then the other thing was to, and I think uh, the White Coat Investor really espouses this view um, in a lot of his early posts and kind of back-to-basics posts, is to live like a resident for a while, uh, after you, even after you start getting in a, drawing and attending salary. And we tried to we tried to do that. We bought a house in residency, which was in 2000. Uh, while I, while I was still in my residency after my wife finished hers, um, which we've lived in since then, uh, and it was not an, you know not a McMansion, not a, an expensive house by any means. And uh, where I live uh, in a small a smaller city, the prices of real estate were not uh, really that high. It's a relatively middle cost of living area or even lower cost of living area as far as the country goes. And so uh, by staying in our, our starter house, so to speak, we kind of remodeled it over the years and added some livable space, but we didn't make that big jump up to uh, a larger house that would have eaten into our, our monthly cash flow. So uh, we were able to kind of save even more toward retirement as a secondary effect of that. Um, and so I think those, well, are, me, those are kind of – sorry, go ahead. Let me interrupt real quick because I'm, I'm really curious about this. Um, buying a house in residency, this is something that when, when people ask me, I often say, don't do it. So how did the two of you decide while you're in residency, because uh, it sounds like you still had at least maybe a, a two or three years of training, to settle down there and buy a house? Like, Did, did you absolutely know that you know that you know that you were going to be there, or how did that – come about that that you did buy a house while you were in residency well we knew that it was early in my residency relatively early so we knew that um, we would be there for close to uh, five years and most of what I've read say that if you think you're going to live somewhere for five years uh, it's kind of um, a breaking point for considering buying versus renting Hmm. and the other thing was that at the time which this is before the financial crisis of 08 09 we there were still widely available, very favorable uh, mortgage loans for that were tailored for physicians, 
And so we were able to get, um, even though we didn't have a lot of money to put down, we were able to get essentially 100% financing on the house and uh, pay for it in that way. And um, like I said, it was not, because it was a lower cost of living area, the, the monthly payments were, were not, too onerous on her, uh, not too onerous on us at all as far as um, you know, hurting our, our monthly cash flow and saving. So I think those are the those are kind of the couple things that a couple of reasons that we decided uh, to buy a house instead of to continue renting. And we, you know, in the end, we 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 kind of had in the back of our minds we we didn't know for sure, but we were thinking that we wanted to stay in the area uh, that we lived anyway. So um, we figured it it was worth even if we did end up breaking even or losing a, a small amount of money at the end of that time if we were to move away after I finished my training it was still worth the slight gamble that, you know, we could buy the house and put that money toward the mortgage over that period of time, knowing that we'd stay there afterwards and that money would be invested in paying down the mortgage to the house. So that was our thought process behind, behind that decision. So what do you think about that now in hindsight? Good decision? Bad decision? In between? I think I'm, I'm happy. We're pretty happy with the decision. Um, the only, the only, we're actually at, at the moment since we, uh, we just had our second child and um, we, our house is not uh, too small. I mean, it's, it's about 2,000 square feet, four bedrooms. Um, so, but compared to, you know, some houses, uh, we could use a little extra space. We, we actually don't really need extra bedroom space. We kind of need more space for a home office for me potentially and, um, possibly for, for guests visiting. Uh, so we're considering buying another house at the moment and up, uh, upsizing to a slightly larger house. Um, but up until now, uh, with, with one child and with just the two of us and a dog, <laughs> it's, been, uh, it's been plenty of space and we've been really, really happy with the decision. And even if you know, we do end up moving, I don't think that would change anything because uh, we've, we've paid off the house at this point and uh, you know, if we do end up selling it, that money will just kind of go toward whatever next house we end up purchasing. So I feel like it was, uh, it worked out well in the long run. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, let's take a pause here for a second and go to our commercial break. I'm having that special offer, my friends, where you can get every single episode of the podcast on for download for you and maybe I'll even send it to you on a USB drive as well as getting a bonus copy of my book The Tax Reduction Prescription an e-copy of it both of those things hundreds of hours of material dozens of ways to slash your taxes for only $5 text less taxes L E S S taxes to 442 and you will get sent from there a link in your email to the checkout page to buy both of those things for five dollars it's, it's interesting just just seeing different people's perspectives and journeys and i'll tell you from from my perspective i see a lot of physicians that do not make it uh, very far with um, their practice so they go one place in residency and switch and fellowship and then start and practice one place and end up don't liking it and end up going someplace else. Um, what would you think about that 
in regards to to other people do you, do you see that at all or is that am i just totally off base there from your experiences um i mean i don't know at the practice i'm at uh it's in uh the suburbs outside of pittsburgh actually um a radiology practice out there and a lot of the folks have been there for quite some time uh a lot of the the older radiologists the older partners in the practice have been there Oh, some of them were, were there for their whole career, 30-something years, and one of them recently retired. Um, and the younger, the younger radiologist, um, we've had, we actually had one that went back to work at the university in the area and then eventually came back to work with us <laughs> after working at the university for a year. He started with us, then he went to the university, and he came back to us. Um, so there certainly is the potential, uh, like you said, for um, – moving around and uh, not staying at a practice for a long time. I don't know. I mean, I don't know um, as far as uh, the other practices in the area, how common it is for, for people to stay only for a short period of time um, and then leave. I would imagine that it depends a lot on the practice and what the, what the, uh, the culture is of that practice. Some practices, you know, the partners uh, take advantage to a certain degree of of their seniority and uh, make it difficult for the younger partners um, or the younger uh, physicians who join the practice who weren't partners yet. I've heard of stories like that. Um, but our practice is pretty fair once you, uh, once you become a partner, which is uh, in a couple years. Um, you know, it's pretty even and you're treated equally to everyone else in the practice. And so I think that goes a long way. Um, it, depends, it really depends on what the practice is like, uh, whether you get a lot of that that hopping between practices. Um, but it's definitely something to think about. I mean, as far as deciding whether to put roots down and buy a house um, in an area, if you're not really sure, I think, I think especially if you are not from an area where you're do, where you're, where you did the training. In other words, if you, like we're, we're from not, not Pittsburgh area, but we're from Pennsylvania. And so we're familiar with a lot of the area and we have family in the area. Um, and so, you know, buying a house was not kind of a stretch for us. Uh, we didn't have it in the back of our minds that we eventually want to go someplace else to be closer to other family members or go back to wherever home might be because home is around this area. But if you come in some to some place and you're just doing training there and then you find a job immediately after that in that area where you did training, but, you know, you're from some other part of the country, I could see this is probably a higher chance that you would only work for a few years there and then end up moving back closer to family, um, which might be in another part of the country. So no, I, I think that, think that's great advice and give some perspective as well into uh, your situation and some of those decisions. I mean, having family is, is so important. Well, the, those last few questions have kind of been more geared towards residents and, and fellows. And I want to uh, switch gears now towards something that I think will be really helpful for attending physicians, especially those at least a, a few years into their career. You wrote a post on mycuriositylab.com, uh, which was one of the things that, that attracted me to you that I really loved called Show Me the Money. My retirement drawdown plan, and I think this post—it's—it's it's hefty. It's a long post that has lots of good content in it. And uh, one one of the questions I usually ask my guests is, "How do you track your progress towards financial freedom?" And I thought you laid that out really well in this post, and you brought out this thing called the fire calc. Um, so can you talk a bit about? 
your thoughts on how are you tracking your financial freedom and, and telling people about this tool, uh, FireCalc? Sure, sure. Um, so first of all, as far as uh, what I'm or how I'm tracking my, my financial freedom, um, if you start to read a lot of the, there's a lot of blogs, first of all, that talk about uh, the concept of FIRE, which is financial independence to retire early. Um, and I'm kind of uh, somewhat uh, part of that blogosphere. I, I like to talk about that in addition to a few other things. Um, uh, but uh, I'm definitely, there's, there's a large community out there that talks about saving for retirement and being able to become financially independent. Um, and for me, um, and for most of these bloggers, what that means is that you basically have enough money saved in your, in your retirement nest egg and your retirement accounts that if you were to stop working, you would not have to, you could live off that money indefinitely, essentially, for the rest of your life if you wanted to. Um, and not all people do that. You know, some people, uh, they prefer to work or, or work part-time or certain, um, you know, some other situation that they don't want to retire completely, but they have the ability, they have enough money saved that just living off of the the kind of interest um, and the dividends and whatever money comes out of their investments, uh, they could do that, and that would cover that would cover their expenses um, for any given year, and they wouldn't have to draw a salary to be able to cover their expenses. They could just live off their investments essentially. So that's the that's the concept of of, um, re, of financial independence and uh, living off of your expenses and this calculator called FireCalc really helps you to plan to see where you are uh, as far as approaching financial independence. So um, I wish I knew who, who created it. It may say on the website, but um, it's essentially a software program. And uh, it has three inputs that you put in. Um, one is what your uh, annual expenses um, are. Um, and one is what your nest egg, your nest egg is. And then you put in a, a, a time, a, uh, horizon as far as the number of years that you'll need to to live off that nest egg. So it, may, it might be 30 years, it might be 50 years, depending on when you retire and what your uh, guess at your at your life expectancy is. Um, and so the the output of the of this calculator, and it's something called a, a Monte Carlo simulation, um, which it basically looks at how investments have performed in, historically. It, so it'll it'll calculate each each given year. I think going back to the late 1800s that we have data on how investments did, and it kind of will simulate. Say you retired in the year 1900 and you had this amount of money, and you wanted to spend this much money, and you lived for 50 years, and it will give you it will give you a line basically that shows you based on how your underlying investments did, where you ended up, and whether you ran out of money whether you had enough money to make it all the way to that end of 50 years. And so it will create one line starting in, say, 1900, and then one line starting in 1901 and 1902. And it does one for every single year that, you know, you theoretically could have retired over the past uh, 100, so, 100 or some years. Um, and the real important information, in my opinion, about, that the graph spits out is a percentage. And what the percentage is is how many – uh, of those years you succeeded, or how many you failed, depending on how you look at it, um, <laughs> meaning uh, how many years you survived to the end of that 50 years and did not run out of money, um, or how many simulations uh, you didn't run out of money. 
uh, in all the, the history of how investments have done. And it, it tells you, you know, how many failed, uh, you know, one or 1% or 2% of the scenarios failed. And those, those worst case scenarios would be something say you, you retired and we had a year, say you retired next year and it was a year like the great depression and your investments kind of fell off the cliff. Um, you know, that might be a worst case scenario year. That might be the one out of one out of a hundred that you actually would run out of money. But if it was, if it happened like any other random year in that period of time, uh, you, you know, you might just do fine and uh, end up with a lot of money at the end, even though you're, you're living off your investments. Um, and of course it's all, it's all speculation in the end because no one knows what's going to happen in the future. But I think it gives a lot of people use it that are thinking about early retirement or retirement uh, as a gauge to, to gather, you know, whether they, whether the money they want to spend in retirement and the amount of money they have saved up for retirement are compatible with succeeding and not running out of money in the long run. And I think it's a great, a great tool um, to start to think about whether you're ready to retire with the amount of money you have saved in your retirement accounts. Well, I think um, I would love to know for you with, with your input. So you used in the article, you talk about having $120,000 a year and mm-hmm. you set yours at 50 and then you had um, different numbers for the portfolio. So, um, I'd love to, to dig into that just, just for the next few minutes, and then we're going to have to wrap up. So how did you get to some of those numbers? So how did, how did you get to $120,000? Where did that come from? Well, that was basically looking at uh, annual expenditures. Um, and I think I explained in the post, that was kind of a guess and a bit of a, a, bit of a high estimate uh, for me for the amount of money I spend per year. Um, and a lot of it is, you know, you have to take into account your mortgage and your, um, yeah. if you have any school expenses, if you have any, um, just, you know, your basic utilities and travel expenses. And so a lot of that was kind of me, me guessing, uh, what I might spend and overestimating, uh, you know, for safety purposes, basically to have a cushion, uh, how much money I might, I might spend in a given year in retirement. So that's where that number comes from. Well, I think it's um, what I like about what you did, which I want to point out to everyone. On the post, what uh, Neil did on mycuriositylab.com was he wrote down his various expenses. Some of these things are savings, and he crossed those out. And then he got down to kind of the bare, bare bones stuff, which was five grand a month. So he basically doubled that, which I think – in my opinion, was a great idea, Neil, because what about stuff like health insurance, right? Um, yes. Those, those kind of things weren't, weren't factored into your 5000 bucks. so I think you gave yourself plenty of wiggle room. What about buying a new car uh, and those things that you have to do from time to time, uh, which are some of the mistakes that, that I see people make when they, they're playing with these kind of assumptions. You've got to give yourself lots of wiggle room uh, for, for that yes. number. So yes, and I, and I think for doctors especially, if you are considering pulling the plug and completely retiring at some point, it's not trivial to say, oh, after ten years I, I made a mistake and I I'm not going to be able to live off this money I saved. You know, to try to go back into medicine after that period of time with uh, licensing and privileges and all of that that goes along with uh, getting started again would be difficult, if not impossible, in some situations. 
So it's really something that you want to have um, you want to have a lot of a lot of cushion before you decide to pull the trigger. And and actually, I I'm not 100% sure that if it comes to that point for me that I would even completely pull the trigger and completely retire for good for medicine. I envision I envision actually like opposed to some doctors maybe I actually do like my job um, at least at least at this point. So um, I think that I would probably do something like a part-time position, maybe even a, a minimal part-time position, like 25% time, uh, just enough to keep my my uh, health insurance for my family, which is one kind of big X factor that people don't know about in, in retirement is paying for health insurance. So I think by doing that, I'd be able to know my health insurance is taken care of on the group plan. And then, um, you know, I could I could still have a lot of free time off and maybe even not have to tap into my retirement accounts if I can live off just the money that I'm making from from a, a minimal part-time job. Um, so that's that's some of the that's what I'm thinking at the moment. Of course, you know, no one knows the future, and my wife and I always talk about it and debate it about how things are going to go. But it it always ends up surprising us. It seems like in a year or two, when uh, the way things turn out. What about um, the number of years assumption you have here? So you set yours at fifty. So tell me more about that. What was behind setting the number of years at fifty? Well, um, that was kind of on the, I think, on the upper range of, um, of what someone might put in there. I mean, if, you, if you're talking about retiring at normal retirement age, so around age 65, you know, if you put in 30 in there, that takes you to 95, that's beyond the, the typical life expectancy for, for the average American. But, you know, assuming you have good genes and who knows about the advances of, of medicine and science in the future, it's not unreasonable to think you might live to age 95. And I was kind of projecting even uh, beyond that, if I were to think about retiring early at age 45, uh, you know, I'd want to, I'd want to have enough money and not run out of it by age, uh, by age 95. Um, but uh, it's interesting the way that, and I don't, I, I wish I knew more about the math of, of uh, how far calc worked, but changing it from 30 to 50 or even 60, uh, depending on your other inputs, does not necessarily change the outputs sometimes. Um, you know, you might have a similar percentage of failure at, at 30 years compared to uh, 60 years or 50 years. Um, I mean, it is different a little bit, but it's not, it's not something like at 30 years you'd have a 100% chance and then at 50 years you'd have only a 50% chance. Um, the differences are, are closer together than you might think uh, living over, even uh, living over a longer period of time. But I think I'm a cautious person in general and so I'm putting I'm putting the number larger longer uh, the number of years longer just to like I said put some more put some more cushion into into that part of it as well uh, to make sure that in case I do in the uh, unlucky scenario that I live very long I have enough money <laughs> I have enough money to live off over that period of time Absolutely. Well, I, I think what I would point out to everyone, as we do these kinds of exercises, it all comes back to assumptions. And the question is how conservative or aggressive they are. I personally tend to be the kind of person that's fairly conservative. And I think I get that from you as well, Neil. So overall, well done. Great post. And there's, there's all kinds of other great stuff on here. So I'd just like to take the next few minutes uh, for you to talk a little bit more about My Curiosity Lab and what you're doing on there and, and um, what we should expect to see. Yeah, so um, I started, it's a relatively new website. I started only a couple of months ago now. Um, and I really am using it as a way to 
um, think about early retirement, uh, interestingly, uh, in the sense that I want the website to kind of be um, kind of work parallel to what I'm doing in my in my life as far as trying to figure out what I want to do um, in a life, or at least a part-time life, uh, after I'm practicing medicine. Um, so it almost by nature incorporates some of these personal finance and uh, early retirement cal- calculations to um, think about, you know, how I'm going to finance that life uh, after uh, retirement or, part- or going to uh, part-time work. Um, and then I'm just kind of um, – a few of the other types of topics that I talk about, I'm pretty passionate about traveling. Uh, my wife and I have traveled a lot, and we hope to do even more of it with with our children in early retirement. So um, I've started to uh, put some a few posts on there about places I've traveled, and in the future I plan to do that probably about once a month, uh, do a post about some place I've been and or even some place that I'd like to go. Um, and I talk a little bit about parenting uh, with my with my son and now my new daughter and uh, the trials and tribulations that go along with that. Um, and just kind of, uh, I think it kind of gives, uh, gives an insight into what's going on in my mind and what I'm thinking about and, um, you know, what I'm interested in. Um, I do a little bit of uh, self-experimentation, uh, light, if you will. Um, I wrote a recent post about going into a sensory deprivation tank, one of these float tanks where you float in the water that's body temperature and you... Uh, you know, you can't see anything, you can't hear anything, and you spend an hour in there and kind of the strange strange things your mind uh, does to you or your, the strange tricks your mind plays on you during that time. Um, and I wrote another one about, uh, I, I basically cut out cut out sugar for a month and, and kind of see how things went and how my, my body reacted. So a little bit of, a little bit of everything um, that's going on in my life and uh, things that I think I might explore in more detail after hopefully I uh, go part-time or retire early at some point in my life. Wow. Very cool. Very, very cool. Well, are you ready for a little bit of a lightning round? Sure, yeah. All right, let's do it. So, Neil, what are the top three financial habits that you have? Okay, so um, I would say, number one, like I said earlier, I think I mentioned earlier, pay yourself first. As far as retirement, that's the the, – primary habit that we have and that we try to stick with. Number two, I would say uh, kiss, keep it, keep it simple, stupid. We try to not make our retirement savings any more complicated than they need to be. Um, and uh, I would say number three is uh, avoid paying interest or high interest as much as possible. So, you know, pay off your credit cards every month. Um, if you have a mortgage, you know, try to get the interest loaded interest rate as low as you can and pay it off as soon as you can. Um, so avoiding paying, paying interest that you don't have to pay is uh, number three. Okay, very good. And what is your guilty pleasure that you spend money on? Hmm. If I had to pick one, I would say travel. As I mentioned, we love to travel. Um, we probably spent, that's probably the biggest part of our um, discretionary spending in a given year uh, is travel spending. Um, and now that our children are, we have to buy tickets for our children. It's kind of becoming a little bit more, more than it right. needs to be. Um, but and what's, what's, what's the best place you've traveled? The best place we've been. My, my wife and I have talked about this before, and I think we would have to pick Patagonia in um, southern Chile and Argentina. Uh, we did that 
uh, eight years ago now. And really beautiful place. I've known a little bit about it, but we flew into Buenos Aires in Argentina and spent a couple days there and then flew down to uh, even further south to near the southern tip of South America. And it's just, it's just a really pristine, beautiful place, windswept, big glaciers, beautiful blue lakes, um, not a lot of people. You get to hike around and all you have are um, you have some alpacas that live wild in the area and uh, you know you might see a, um, a jaguar um, in the uh, – uh, sorry, a puma. They're called pumas there. Um, that we that live in the caves around there and uh, yeah that was that was a beautiful place we talk about going back there one day uh, maybe once the kids can walk a little bit better because there's a lot of hiking involved <laughs> and lastly what does being a success mean to you well being a success I would say at this point I really think about it um, through the lens of being a father uh, especially you know in light of just having a baby I really want to be a good role model for my children, both um, financially and, and otherwise as a person. And uh, so a good father and husband and, uh, you know, teach them what it, what it means to uh, be financially independent and uh, be, be financially successful in their life, I think, is, uh, is important, too, um, and something that I hope to do. That's great. All right. Well, that's the end of the lightning round. And, Neil, I just want to wrap up with – Two more, two, three more questions. Um, let's just take a step back in the past. Let's say that you're sitting down with young resident Neil that hasn't been hit up by an insurance salesman yet, that uh, he's a, a first-year resident, just matched at a medical school. What advice would you give to him? Hmm. Um, so I would probably emphasize to him that money, think of money as a means uh, rather than an end. And uh, by that I mean um, just trying to focus on, you know, why you are, why are you doing this for? What, what, why are you saving this money for retirement? Why are you trying to get this job that you earn money? Um, and, you know, you're not just doing it for the money itself, but, you know, try to think about, I would tell him to try to think about uh, what those ends are and, and what you're trying to, to uh, accomplish in your life. Because I think I think you can kind of get lost in the, uh, especially in, in medicine, you get lost in the day-to-day what you're doing um, and, you know, focus on getting, get going to the next step, the next fellowship or the next job. And, you know, you, you kind of forget about what your end goals are um, and why you're doing it uh, sometimes. Um, Not so that's, seeing the that's, forest uh, behind the trees, huh? Yes, exactly. Well, uh, any other closing thoughts, Neil, that you want to leave uh, with us? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just uh, I want to thank you for having me on the podcast and uh, appreciate what you're doing for, uh, for doctors out there. And uh, I think there are a lot of great resources both on the web and uh, elsewhere um, for doctors that want to learn about their own finances. And it's totally, it's totally doable. Um, just some reading and some and some thinking, and uh, there are uh, lots of doctors that that uh, you know do it themselves, and uh, just to give it a whirl and you can pull it off. I think that's good. That's good. And where can people find you, Neil, if they want to check out the the blog or be in touch with you? Well, they can find me. the The website is mycuriositylab.com, and I'm probably most active as far as social media on Twitter. 
which is at my curiosity lab. And uh, you can email me from the website as well. I'm, I'm, uh, I love to hear from people who are reading and what they think about what I'm doing. All right, my friends, we'll check out My Curiosity Lab or follow Neil on Twitter. I think he has a really great writing style, and uh, I highly recommend the blog uh, to talk about finances and stuff outside of finances. And so, my friends, that wraps it up for today. In the next podcast, I would love to tell your story. Just connect with me, and let's help tons of physicians together. You can contact me at Dave at Dr freedompodcast.com or at www.doctor or at www.doctorfreedompodcast.com also big favor to ask of you if you gain some value out of this podcast and with Neil and you're loving this stuff here's what I want you to do grab your friends or your colleagues iPhone or iPad or Android or whatever device you can think of find the podcast link get them subscribed to this podcast and download your favorite episodes and if they they don't like it just blame it on me tell them it was my fault I told them to do that and if they like it you can take all the credit but uh, anyhow thank you so much for joining me today it means so much to have you take time out of your super busy compressed schedule for the freedom formula for physicians podcast this is Dave Deniston and remember my friends remember to slash your debt slash your taxes and live a liberated lifestyle I'm having that special offer, my friends, where you can get every single episode of the podcast on for download for you, and maybe I'll even send it to you on a USB drive, as well as getting a bonus copy of my book, The Tax Reduction Prescription, an e-copy of it. Both of those things, hundreds of hours of material, dozens of ways to slash your taxes for only $5. Text less taxes l-e-s-s taxes to 44222 and you will get sent from there a link in your email to the checkout page to buy both of those things for five dollars all right let me know my friends uh other guests other people you might be interested in would love to connect and help more and more physicians for the freedom formula for physicians podcast this is dave Deniston, remember, my friends, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle.